You are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our text this morning comes from Psalm 92, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15. And it reads this way, a song, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. I, uh, I love our church because by the time I sit down, I have three texts telling me to turn my microphone on, um, which is great. Um, so it's good. Good morning. Um, happy Fourth of July weekend. Uh, this is a um, lot to celebrate, a lot to thank the Lord for even this weekend is head into July the 4th, and I hope that you're able to rest, as Cody said before, rest in this, you know, national holiday we have where a lot of us are off work or able to take the day. Um, But today we are starting a July sermon series before we pick back up in 2 Samuel in August called Worship Wars, the Battle for Our Heart's Affections. And uh, I just thought it'd be appropriate in July, given that our kids are going to be leading us in worship, uh, given that um, worship is a big part of, the worship act itself is a big part of why we gather as a church on a week-to-week basis. I thought it'd be a good idea just to spend a few weeks just talking about the significance of, of worship, of what we do on a Sunday. Cody will be preaching next week. Eric will be preaching in a couple of weeks, um, just to give an opportunity to other voices to be heard. I thought it'd be great for our worship pastor to preach a week on worship, Um, so you can hear from him, but our hearts truly are a a battlefield uh, for our affections and desires. You know, I don't don't know if you remember, probably some of you guys weren't even born yet, Um, but uh, if you remember what was called the worship wars, like in the early to mid-1990s, early 2000s, these fights that took place in like a lot of local churches 
as you know, hip new worship music started infiltrating the walls of our traditional you know, churches, maybe you're in one, but this, this thing called contemporary Christian music had like started to take the world by storm, and the music was like more upbeat, and it had like drums and electric guitars and things that were uh, not, not a lot like our parents' organs and pianos that you know, many of us grew up in. Um, but a lot of churches began introducing what they called contemporary style of worship. That was kind of how they marketed themselves. We offer contemporary service, you know, uh, which, you know, that word sounds so old now. But they sing songs like Shout to the Lord, you know, or Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, and, you know, the Hill songs and the DC Talks and the Amy Grants and the Passions. They're all starting to, like, infiltrate the walls of our our traditional churches, and really influence, you know, the worship cultures of those churches. And there were really three responses you saw when this started to happen. The first response was just like a total rejection of like this new wave of, of worship music coming in. You know, churches, they, they dug their heels in and really clung to the hymns or the, the ancient liturgies that they had sung or recited for years and years. And and honestly, if you go back and do an assessment, many of these churches really dwindled during that time. Some of them died. And they closed their doors. You know, they just simply refused to adopt this new style of, of worship into their churches. And the second response was like the opposite. If you got like a, a, a plane here, that's this one side. The other side is like just a complete, total capitulation to the contemporary style of worship. You know, a complete leaving behind of, of anything that smelled old or worn or ancient. You know, it almost felt like a complete severing of ties from previous generations of old. You know, in hopes of attracting new people, you know, or keeping things fresh and relevant was a big word. And we want to be relevant, you know, to the younger crowd. You know, many of these churches, they began to see uh, rapid growth oftentimes in avenues like that. But oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes this was at great cost to the gospel uh, because many of these churches became what they would call seeker-sensitive type churches where they would water truths of the gospel down in order to pad numbers or pad dollars or whatever the case may be. And then you had this third response, which is maybe more typical, uh, but you kind of had churches begin to produce like a both-and to worship. It's like, hey, come at 8 30. It's our traditional worship service because the older crowd likes to worship at 8 30 so they can get to Luby's, you know, by 10 45 and eat their cafeteria food after Sunday school. And then the younger crowd can come at 11 um, and they can sleep in from the, you know, the night before. They were probably up late, sleep in, come and have a contemporary worship service at 11. That's a little more upbeat. The worship pastor probably took his tie off, you know, to, you know, adapt to the contemporary thing. But they're getting their fix of, like, high energy and upbeat worship music and that 11 o'clock gathering. But the effects of that approach were almost equally as devastating as the first two. You know, for what began with good intentions of, like, let's just maintain peace and unity in our church by offering two options— actually ended up cultivating two churches, two cultures that had very little to do with one another. There was often very little overlap between generations when those things happened because the older generation would be gone by the time the younger generation came in. 
Very little intergenerational discipleship. Very little unity being actually built. There was unity between this service and unity over here, but very little unity across the board because one group had suspicion of the other and vice versa. And these kinds of worship wars, they're like nothing new. They're nothing new. You can go back throughout the history of Christendom. When Martin Luther started taking bar tunes and writing hymns to them, I mean, there were worship wars then, you know, back in the 1500s. But looking back in my own time, growing up in the church, you know, things during this time period got really messy. You know, churches fought. Some churches split. Or as they like to frame it up, a group of people went and planted a church down the road you know, a little ways away, when it was in reality a church split over styles of worship. I remember growing up and seeing some of the worst things come out in people during these times because everyone was trying to guard what they believed to be the sanctity of biblical worship. But here's the truth of the situation. You know, most of the infighting and the passion and the defenses of those worship styles and many responses in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s in this worship vein was not theological in nature at all. I mean, it had very little to do with the words of songs. It had very little to do with the gospel being compromised or anything like that. But it was really honestly fighting about what was preferential. You know, people grew up and experienced one style of worship they really liked and connected to the Lord with, and that's not a bad thing. But when that began to be taken away, or something new started to be implemented, or a church was refusing to implement anything new, many people rioted because they thought what they needed for worship was now no longer available to them. But the worship wars we're really symptomatic of something that really runs deeper in all of us. Which leads to really two reasons why we're doing this sermon series. One, we're all worshipers. You know, as, as a matter of fact, every human being who's ever walked the planet or walks the planet now has been a worshiper. You know, worshiper, you know, paying, worshiping, paying, paying homage or uh, honoring someone or something as sacred, is ingrained in the very fabric of our makeup as human beings made into the image of God. You know, whether you're a believer in God or not, every decision, every person makes decisions, spends money, sacrifices time, centers their lives around something or someone they deem of significant value and worth. Something or someone some cause sits on the throne of each of our lives. You know, everyone has a God. Whether you're an atheist or not, you have a God. And the question is, is your God truly worthy of worship? So this series will help hopefully expose us as to who or what we are actually worshiping. But then second... Second reason, big reason why we're walking through this sermon series is to place the God of the Bible, you know, seen most clearly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, to place the God of the Scriptures before our eyes and before our hearts and before our minds and gaze upon the beauty and the worth 
and the splendor and the goodness of the one we worship. You know, John Calvin called our hearts idol factories. You know, just churning our little gods out, these imposters that want to steal our affections and steal our desires and steal our worship away from the one true God. You know, our hearts are so easily led astray to lesser gods. Our hearts need to be turned back to the Spirit often to truly treasure Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 27, 4, you know, one thing I've asked the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And that's the prayer. It's our prayer for this next five weeks and beyond, but particularly this next five weeks. And then to see how that manifests itself in our church, Emmanuel Church, on a week-to-week basis. And our first text we're going to look at over this five weeks is here in Psalm 92. Psalm 92. The psalm serves as a, a conscious decision for the psalmist to praise the Lord, while at the same time being a call for others to praise the Lord as well. It's kind of an invitation to come and praise the Lord, to worship the Lord. And it's a psalm directly tied to the Sabbath day. You see that right there in the little conscription, even before you get to verse 1. It's a psalm tied to the Sabbath. It's a psalm written to be sung and reflected upon among the Old Testament people of God when they would gather to meet corporately for worship. And Sabbath for us, just like Sabbath for those in the Old Testament, is extremely important. Now, the concept of Sabbath in the New Testament extends beyond, you know, simply a specific day set aside to worship the Lord. It's not less than that, but the New Testament kind of unveils it to be more as well. You know, particularly in the book of Hebrews, Sabbath is a a state of being that kind of exists in an already not yet. And what I mean by that is we have rest from our works try to please God. We've entered into Sabbath rest from trying to earn God's favor through Christ. That's Hebrews chapter 4. While at the same time, final Sabbath rest, where we you know, go to be with the Lord finally and fully, free from all the burdens of this world that has not yet come, right? We're all still breathing. We're alive. We're here. So it's an already and a not yet. Already, yet awaiting something more. But at the same time, it's still super important to practice literal Sabbath, right? I mean, it's not law. You know, we don't do it to earn God's favor. Christ has kept the law for us. He's fulfilled the law. But it's still something to be practiced for our good. I'm not talking about Sabbath simply as a time to take off from working and, like, be idle all day, you know, to get in your recliner and turn on football on a fall afternoon and fall asleep. That, that is rest, technically, but that's not Sabbath rest I'm talking about. But biblical Sabbath is a time of separating ourselves from, from all other things that occupy our time and attention and to lift our minds and our hearts to the work and the person of Christ. It's an active resting. It's not a passive resting. Now, Eugene Peterson says it like this. It's a quote. It'll be on the screen for you. I think, yeah, perfect. Sabbath is the time to set aside to do nothing so that we can receive everything. To set aside our anxious attempts to make ourselves useful, 
to set aside our tense restlessness, to set aside our media-satiated boredom. Sabbath is the time to receive silence and let it deepen into gratitude, to receive quiet into which forgotten faces and voices unobtrusively make themselves present, to receive the days of the just completed week and absorb the wonder and miracle still reverberating from each one, to receive our Lord's amazing grace. Now, that's a a huge reason why we gather together as a body every single week, every Sunday. You know, we set aside this time to come together and to reflect as one body upon the works of our God and to celebrate those together. That amidst the chaos that's been going on for you maybe all week out there, it's a time where you can check your anxiety at the door and at least for an hour and a half, you, you lift your hearts and your minds to the God of all creation who loves us and is for us in Jesus Christ. He's worthy of our worship and our praise, and that's why we set aside this time to worship and praise Him. Not us, but Him. And you see that here in our text. This psalm demonstrates God's worthiness and calls upon us to remember and proclaim those truths. And while we do that, it produces joy and gladness in us, which is our first point. Worship of God produces gladness from God. Worship of God produces gladness from God. So let's look at this text. Let's see it. Read with me again verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5, Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. So right there in verse 1, it's good to give thanks to the Lord. Right here from the outset, you see that the worship of God has intrinsic value, intrinsic value, that it's a good thing we're doing, right? The activity of worship is a good activity simply because God is worthy of it. And it's good because he is the only one worthy of our thanks and our praise. You know, in ascribing God the worship he deserves, we are doing a good work for ascribing anything less Anything less than him, ascribing those things to anything less than him is doing harm to us and our souls. It's doing a bad work. So a good work. It is good that we come in and give praise and worship to the source of all of our being, the giver of all good things. And the psalmist points this out in two ways. First, we worship God for who he is, for who he is. It says right there in verse 1, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the character, names, being, like all of these things have close ties in the scriptures, right? And this is especially true of God. His name carries with it certain character attributes. I mean, I think about Exodus 33 and 34. Moses is on the Mount, he's on Mount Sinai receiving the law from the Lord. The people are worshiping this golden calf. The Lord spares them through Moses' intercession. Moses feels like, man, I'm, I'm on a roll right now. Show me your glory, God. 
And the Lord's like, I can't, no man can see my glory, my majesty in its fullness and live because you're sinful and I'm gloriously holy. You can't live. But what I can do is I can hide you in this place in the rock and I'll pass by you. And when I pass by, you can catch the backside of my glory and behold a piece, a tiny fraction of my glory. And when God does that, he not only passes by Moses and Moses beholds the back of his glory, but as he's passing by, God is revealing to Moses his name, his character. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, I'm going to read it for you. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then Moses responds in verse 8, the very next verse, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Moses worshiped the Lord for who he was, not simply for what he had done, but for who he intrinsically was in his own self in his own being. Even if the Lord chose to do nothing else for us for the remainder of our days, he would still be worthy of worship simply because he is God. And he is intrinsically worthy of it. But at the same time, the Lord does do great things for us. Although we do worship God for the mere fact of who he is, we do second, we worship him for what he has done. For his works. You see this in verse 2, when his steadfast love and faithfulness is mentioned. You see it even more in verses 4 and 5. Great are your works, O Lord. I love the phrasing there in verse 2 that we declare God's steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. It's almost like when you wake up, you have a a conscious realization that the covenant love of the Lord gives you confidence for the day. No matter what comes your way, your God is for you. He's on your side. He is for your good and for his glory. And then as you lay your head on the pillow at night, after a long day of being kept by the steadfast love of the Lord, you look back and you worship God for his faithfulness to you. That he didn't break his promises that he kept them all for you because they're all true in Jesus. I used to think about that old, um, the old song. We even sang some of it with the Goodness of God song, but it makes me think about the old song from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. The name of the Lord shall be praised. It's like all day from morning to night, we are praising and worshiping the Lord for his goodness, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, and his works towards us for our good and for his glory. You know, every good thing you have in this life, every good thing I have in this life is a gift from the hands of a benevolent creator, a benevolent creator who happens to be an extremely generous giver. And he is responsible for anything in our lives that is worthy of thanksgiving. You know, I look back in my own life and I see so many gifts of God's grace that I just could not have imagined in my wildest days. You know, when Christine and I were walking through infertility issues a few years into our marriage, trying to have a baby, and the adoption process was just taking so long, it didn't seem to ever come to an end, and those 
countless nights of waiting and praying for one baby, I would have never in my wildest dreams ever imagined that I'd have three kids under my roof. Even last night, Christine and I, we took our kids to Hibachi Grill for the first time. Um, in our minds, they were going to love it, all right? But, uh, I mean, cooking in front of them, you know, fire, smoke, smoking onion volcano, like, what's not the love? But little did we anticipate our kids being absolutely terrified. Uh, Aiden is literally, <laughs> he's clinging to me and crying with his head, like, buried in my chest, like, just weeping. And I went to, he was in a chair, and I went to pick him up when all the smoke was going. And I picked him up, and I, like this, and he thought I was, like, going to throw him to the fire. So he, like, loses his mind, and he's, like, clean. Anyway, it was, it was not how we planned, but praise the Lord. I have three kids. I have three kids. Three kids. When it was so hard to get one, now I have three. I mean, praise the Lord for that. Now, when I was having a, back in 2020, like November of 2020, I was having a significant internal crisis of ministry, just, a, just an identity kind of crisis, um, just really wondering if the Lord had truly called me to be a pastor. Um, you all right? Okay. <laughs> um, but I was just, just kind of in the weeds and, and really like downcast for a lot of reasons. But in the midst of that pretty significant internal pastoral crisis, I could have never in my wildest dreams, imagine pastoring you. Just the gift of God's grace to have a church full of Jesus-loving men and women that I get to meet with every single week and be with you during the week. I would have never imagined that. Or my second year of seminary, 26-year-old man, in the middle of my parents getting divorced. You know, it's just that time's going on. My family's just falling apart. You know, I could have never imagined all that the Lord would teach me about the beauty of the local church that came alongside my mom, that pursued wholeheartedly my father, that cared for my brothers and I in the middle of all of this garbage just happening in my life. I could have never imagined the love God would put in my heart for shepherding a broken, broken people, myself included, but that are being renewed every single day. It's an amazing thing. You know, it's good to come together, church. It's good to come together on the Lord's day, and, and thank him for all the good things he's done for us. It's a good thing, for there's much to be thankful for. And with that intrinsic value of the worship act itself, because God is worthy of it, we also see throughout the psalm that we are embodied worshipers. Embodied worshipers. My wife would really love that I'm using this language right now. That phrasing, it may sound a little strange, but, but when you stop and read through this psalm, you see that this worshiping act is more than simply just reciting words. It's more than just singing phrases, but it, it is an act that involves not simply our souls, but our physical makeup as well, our physical being. I mean, give thanks, sing praises, declare. All of these words involve our mouths, right? Literally speaking, telling of the goodness of God. When instruments are involved, verse 3, when instruments are involved, we're using our hands or our feet to play those instruments. Our physical bodies are engaged in the praise of God. Obviously, as one is speaking or playing, we are hearing the effects of that. We hear those instruments. We hear those words as they enter into our ears, into our brains. Verse 11 talks about how our eyes 
have seen the justice of God being carried out on the wicked. So we're going to talk about in a second. In verses 12 and 14, as the righteous are planted like palm trees and cedars full of sap and green, it's really not hard to imagine the sweet smells and aromas associated with that imagery. I mean, literally, one of my favorite smells in the world is the smell of cedar. I just love it. You give me a cedar-scented candle, and it takes me to places unknown. Uh, that heaven's going to smell like cedar. It just is. If you're disappointed by that, then you may be disappointed with heaven. Um, but the psalmist also mentions sap, you know, the lifeblood of a tree, so to speak. It makes my mind go to the sweet taste of like maple syrup from a maple tree. All of our senses here being invoked in the singing, in the worship of God. Not just words, but our bodies. You know, the worship of the Lord is intended to be anything but a stoic experience, right? When we are truly filled with the wonder and the awe of the Lord, our entire selves are involved in the experience of praise. Now, we often find ourselves not only lifting our voices, but lifting our hands. I mean, how often are we commanded in the scriptures to lift up our hands, right? To use our bodies to worship the Lord just as much as our voices, just as much as our minds, to use our, our being. Because here's the deal. We are whole persons. We are body and soul. And Jesus was not just resurrected in spirit. He was resurre- resurrected in body, which gives eternal value and significance to our physical makeup as well as our spiritual makeup. Jesus could have been raised soul only, but he wasn't. He redeemed our physical bodies, and he is embodied now. He is in a physical body at the right hand of the Father, and we too will have our bodies raised up. So why not start using them in worship now? And if we're going to be worshiping with our mouths and with our bodies the entirety of eternity, with our souls, why not start now? You know, as we worship, as we experience the reality of embodied praise just emanating from us, we are filled with gladness. We're filled with joy. Verse 4, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. The works of your hands I sing for, for joy. So are you filled with joy when you worship? Are you overcome with gladness when you sing with the church? When we recount together the works of God on a Sunday to Sunday basis, is that the emotion that consumes you? Joy, gladness. You know, if someone walks through those doors on a Sunday for the first time, would they leave describing us as a glad people? A joyful people. You know, does that come through when we sing, when we worship? Is our gladness and joy evident not simply in the songs that we sing, but in our physical demeanor as we sing them? Do we sing with smiles on our faces or stoicism in our countenance? I find it very difficult to talk about anything or anyone I love without emotion or passion in my voice and in my body. Do we sing and talk about Jesus like that? We are redeemed people who understand and experience the gladness of God in Jesus Christ. But the psalmist goes on. He goes on to contrast us with those who reject God. 
And he says that the worship of God also rests in the coming justice of God. Read me again verses 6 through 11. 6 through 11. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. You know, the psalmist here doesn't deny the reality of what we, he often sees and what we probably often see on a daily basis, that the wicked seem to flourish in this world, while the righteous seem to suffer in this world. That those who reject God seem to have seasons of success and money and fame and renown and ease and comfort in this life, while those who seem to uh, follow Jesus tend to suffer in this life. We, we feel like it should be the opposite, right? That we should be gaining, right, in this life, so to speak, following Jesus. But the psalmist is not deterred by the brief flourishing of the wicked. You know, he has an eternal view in mind here. He compares the wicked to the grass in verse 7. You know, which makes my mind go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, that the flower withers and the grass fades right? The grass just fades away. The grass is temporary. The grass is here today and gone tomorrow. You know, although grass may spring up quickly, it's mowed in my yard every two weeks. It's cut down, right? But the psalmist here, just like Isaiah 40, he contrasts the briefness of the flourishing of the wicked with the everlasting eternal rule of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, Isaiah said, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Or even here, the psalmist writes, So the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. It's this contrasting between the temporary and the brief and that which lasts for eternity. You know, when our lives seem to be floundering while those who reject God seem to be thriving, our continued praise of God is rooted in the coming justice of God. When all wrongs will be righted, when all secret things will be revealed. You know, we don't live for this life only. Church, we know that, but we forget it. I forget it. We don't live for this life only. We live for eternity. You know, the psalmist is trying to paint the picture of how ridiculous and absurd it is to envy the wicked in this life who are swiftly just cut down in comparison to the eternal state of joy and gladness the righteous will find themselves in with the God they worship. You know, God eternally sits on his throne and he will one day raise us up with him, with Jesus Christ, to seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. Justice delayed is not justice discarded. It's coming, it's just not here yet. And we worship the righteous God who is bringing it. And then lastly here, worship of God cultivates steadfastness in us steadfastness. Here verses 12 through 15. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. 
He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. You know, the longer I am uh, in pastoral ministry, the more and more I value men and women who make it, who make it to the end. I mean, it's probably every single week I hear of some scandal or somebody falling to some kind of moral failure or whatever the case may be that's leading out in some church or organization. And I think the longer I'm in it, the more I respect and want to sit under those men and women who have finished well. You know, there's nothing like being in the presence of an an elderly saint of God. You know, this text is describing a people who, as they devote themselves to the worship of the Lord, they increase in their vigor. You know, this people remain stable and steadfast. This people, they thrive and they flourish because they have deep roots. You know, they, they tend to be more secure and more graceful and humble and like, like aged mighty trees planted in life-giving fields. I just think about elderly believers who have come to the final days and years of their lives and they can recount story after story after story of God's faithfulness and goodness towards them. You know, they're not grouchy or ornery. You know, they aren't eager to share their opinions or stories about how things were back in their day. It's just a quiet dignity and humility and grace that permeates just from them. They just just ooze the gladness of God for his steadfast love and faithfulness, even to their final days. We've all been with people like that. And I could literally give you names right now of men and women off the top of my head that demonstrated this. We all could. These men and women who, verse 15, declared that the Lord was upright, that he was their rock, and there was no unrighteousness in him. I mean, they truly were like great cedars and palms, great oak trees of gospel fruit and faithfulness that seemed to give life to all those around them. And I pray for that here, church. You know, if you were to look around on a given Sunday, you're not going to see a lot of gray around here. You'll see some, praise the Lord. There aren't many grandparents in our body. There are some, praise the Lord. Don't go anywhere if you're a grandparent. Uh, We want you here. We need more of you. But most of our church is made up of young singles and couples and families. A lot of kids full of a lot of life and vigor and chaos. But I do pray for us, church. I do pray that in 10, 20, 30 years from now, you know, if the Lord allows me, that I'm able to stand up here and look out over this body and see a, a group of, of joy-filled worshipers and see cedar after cedar after cedar. Cedars of Jesus-loving men and women who are young now, who have deep, deep roots that are full of sap and full of green consumed with the joy and the gladness of our God. I would love to see your aged, wrinkled faces as we all get old together. It's happening really quick. Um, I feel it. And be able to recount with you story after story 
of God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards us as a body. I think about Psalm 126. Psalm 126, a psalm written on the back end of exile of Israel. They've been brought back into a shadow of what once was their land. And it's a song that they would sing as they would go up to Jerusalem to worship every single year. One of the songs, and they would say, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with joyful shouting. They say, Among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And I think about the psalmist, he, he stops there. And says, the nations are declaring how much the Lord has done for his people. But then the psalmist writes, and the Lord has done great things for us. You know, it's easy to hear the stories of other people telling us all the things God has done, great things he's done among us in this body, and not stop and think about all the great things he's done for us. The psalmist writes, and the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Filled with joy. God has done great things for us, church. He's done great things for you. And the psalmist and the Lord and I want us to reflect and meditate on those great things and may it drive us to worship the giver of those things for his glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Father, you have done great things for us. You've done great things for me. And it's hard not to be glad and filled with joy when we just take the time to remember them. Even if there was nothing else besides your son, that would be more than enough. Pray for us as a church, O oh Lord. I pray for us that as we mature, as we grow as a body, as we seek to live holy, obedient lives day by day, holy, obedient lives full of great delights in you, I pray, Lord, that you do fill this body with countless stories of your goodness and your love and your faithfulness towards us. And may we not keep those to ourselves. so good to us and you're so gracious to us and you're so kind to us. May this time, every single Sunday, this time where we come and engage, engage one another with the gospel, this time where we come and remind one another of the gospel, may it be undergirded by just a, a delight in you. May you be pleased with our worship and our praise, oh God. May it not just be from our lips. But may it be encompass our entire selves and be from our hearts. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.